Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Knowing About Poetry, a podcast in which we put together a few ideas about the importance of older poetry in present times. And on which we are today yet again talking about Shakespeare, this time with his innovative citation by the massively important Greek poet, George Seferis. It's brilliant to be discussing these two authors with Roger Christofides. Hello there, Roger. Hello, Joe. Hello, listener. Uh, who is doing us a very special service by virtue of being the first serious early modernist who I've been able to persuade to come on the podcast. And I, I just realised you did say, hello, listener there, Roger. Um, one listener at least, uh, you know, that's kind of our aim. Maybe the, maybe there's two or three. On I, was, I was addressing them personally, Joe. Okay, good, good. Uh, so um, early modernists actually sometimes seem a little bit shy when it comes to expressing themselves on a more recent text. I don't think we're going to have that kind of issue with Roger today, and I mean that in a good way, um, because he's not only got a really serious knowledge of literature of that period, but I also think he's got an exceptional sense of the very real political, cultural and artistic importance of Shakespeare for a modern audience. So you'll see this if you pick up and read any of Roger's published writings, and I really recommend you do so, whether that's his 2012 book on Shakespeare and the Apocalypse, or his more recent book called Othello's Secret, The Cyprus Problem. That's from 2016. Um, that's going to be a really important one for us today. And um, Roger, am I right in thinking you've also got a couple of articles from the last few years that, that would be good reading for, for people who like what they hear today? Yeah, I think that's right, Joel. Um, I'll suggest two articles that I think are relevant and probably tie in really, really nicely with the discussion that we're going to have today. Both of them are from the British Shakespeare Association's journal Shakespeare. There's issue, uh, volume 16, issue three, which I edited and which is on Shakespeare in the greater Middle East. So it kind of covers uh, the relationship between um, Shakespeare's corpus and what we would call the Greater Middle East, so that term that was coined by the, the neocons post 9-11, and really trying to reappropriate that term and try and understand Shakespeare's work in the light of it. And also Shakespeare, uh, volume 17, issue one, um, which is generally a really good issue on race and nation. And I have an article on Othello and race in that, in which I kind of think really about the race of the reader, and the race of the scholar, not just Othello's race. So today, what we're talking about today actually leads on really, really directly from your work on Othello. Um, and it was actually reading your book, um, Othello's Secret, where I, I realised that there was this connection between Seferis and, and Othello that I, I don't think I'd have got from, from many other sources that I might look at. Uh, and I was especially glad to be reading that work of yours because I was teaching Othello to, to year nine pupils this summer. I guess what that book was helpful for, for me was that I've always struggled to understand how that idea of post-colonial, post-colonialism, post-colonial criticism might fit in with the play Othello. One of those agenda-setting readings by Stephen Greenblatt four years ago now suggested it, that it was the concept of empathy in Iago that identifies the white Venetians of the play as colonizers and the African Othello as a colonized subject. But more recent readings of the play tend to see Othello's race in terms of an emerging discourse of race and racism in English and European thought, which actually relates slightly less directly to ideas of colonisation as compared to, say, something like um, The Tempest. So I, I guess I just really like to think a bit more about 
sort of the critical history of Othello. And I think, you know, Rod, you've, you've, you've got some great views on this. And perhaps one of the first things to think about is when I was reading your book, there was a very clear, explicit statement of your own personal investment in the, the critical project that you were undertaking with regards to Othello. That, to me, was, was an immensely positive feature of the book. And it's something that's almost completely absent from so much critical writing from, uh, you know, all those big, clever presses that we see. Maybe, I don't know, you get a few sentences in the introduction or something or the prologue or the preface. But but you really made a sustained engagement with, with your own motivations, your own experiences and how they fed into your reading of the play. So I guess I wonder, do you think that the the personal weaknesses and the biases and the blind spots that critics of the past century have got, um, have those weaknesses uh, had a kind of big impact on the way we've read the play? By, by we, I mean a kind of general reading public. What do you think the, the connection there is between those blind spots and the critical readings that have been going out about Othello? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Joel. I think there's a, there's a lot to be said, first of all, about our personal responses to the text, and that's maybe something we can we can come back to in more detail afterwards. But that idea of the blind spot, I think, is really, really important because you mentioned that that critical history of reading Othello in terms of race and post-colonialism, which has been filtered through so many of the different isms in, in the field of Shakespeare studies. Um, but of course, the big absence in discussions of race has always been the, the race of the reader and the race of the scholar, something which has, has really been absent, which has led in a way to a kind of fetishization of race that I think Greenblatt himself says has, has kind of led to a recapitulation of, of racism because we're so focused on it. The Anglo-centric, Anglo-American kind of um, institution of Shakespeare studies became so focused on race that it almost fetishized it and reproduced the very racism it was trying to, to kind of argue against. And I think the blind spot there has always been, you know, what is the reader in terms of their assumptions about race bringing to the text? So a very kind of simple example of that is what I write about in, in, um, in one of the articles that I mentioned earlier, which is the fact that the position of Hamlet and the position of Othello have always been different. And just to cut a long story short, we can really just reduce that down to the race of the character and the assumptions that we make about those characters. So we've always put Hamlet on a pedestal. That play has always been seen as the kind of central part of Shakespeare's corpus rather than Othello. And the simple question I would ask is, is that because of Hamlet's race? And I think when you ask that question, it's very difficult to, to not start wondering why it is that Hamlet and not Othello is seen as the universal representation of the human experience. Because Othello, as an immigrant, um, as someone who lives in a place where he is an outsider, represents a, an experience that is very universal, but perhaps is not universal to the Anglo-American uh, scene or to Shakespeare studies in the Anglo-American kind of academy. So I think that blind spot has really affected how we see Othello, how we read Othello, the assumptions we make about Othello and what we think is important about Othello. 
Now, for us, obviously, race is a really, really important issue, but we're thinking specifically about Cyprus and Seferis writing about Cyprus. And I think Cyprus has also always been a blind spot in, in Shakespeare studies when it comes to, to Othello. It's always been something that's been omitted from discussion, and that's despite the fact that most of the play happens in Cyprus. So for me personally, that that was always quite galling as someone who you know was really excited to, to read a play that was set in Cyprus and then to find so little discussion of, of what the importance of that site was. And it really is a very, very relevant site to the play because Cyprus was an important place in the early modern mindset, not least because this was a society that was obsessed with the classical world and Cyprus held a really, really important place in the classical world, a really, really important place in Ovid. And we know how important Ovid was to the formation of, of Shakespeare, how influential Arthur Golding's kind of translation of, of the Metamorphoses was. So it holds a really, really important place in Shakespeare's world, which has been overlooked. Um, it was a really, really interesting site in Shakespeare's world with lots of different interpretations of it that has been that have been overlooked. But also, and perhaps most importantly, the incredible relevances between what is happening in that play in terms of identity, in terms of relationships between the characters and the history of Cyprus and the history of ethnic trouble in Cyprus is really quite striking. And I think it's an incredible oversight that that argument has never been made or explored. The closest we have come to it is by seeing Cyprus um, as a kind of bellwether for the Ottoman advances. So the, the kind of fall of Cyprus that is hinted at in Othello was seen and has been argued as a bellwether for other threats in Europe, but from the Ottoman Empire. But it's far more than that. It's far more than that. Cyprus is an island that is divided between Greek speakers and Turkish speakers. Cyprus is an island that traces its ethnic strife back to 1571, back to the loss of, um, of Cyprus. And it's framed in that way by Greek nationalists, of course, the loss of Cyprus to Turkey, to the Ottoman Empire. And so that kind of history that Othello is invoking is so important to the cultural and political landscape in Cyprus. And that argument has never really been explored. And it not only helps us say so much about political and cultural life in Cyprus, but I think it helps us reread Othello as a Cypriot play as well, rather than just a Venetian play. Okay, so thanks, Roger, for really explaining this, this, this major, major blind spot. And um, certainly it's one I can see from, from my first exposure to to, to Othello as an A-level student, um, we didn't think about Cyprus at all. You didn't talk about Cyprus at all. That was where the play happened, but it, there wasn't anything special or remarkable about that. There was no history to be recounted, no uh, analysis that could follow from, from that fact. And I think, you know, it's something you could include at, at A-level. So, I mean, I think it's just really striking that that, that, that blind spot could produce such a you know, a complete ignorance of, of what is objectively, empirically present uh, in the play. So I think you've given us, a, as well as explaining about how critical dispositions have, have affected the, over, the sort of the cultural sense of Othello, and you've, you, you then explained why it's so important to think about Cyprus and the impact that thinking about Cyprus um, might have on, a, on our understanding of, of the play. And I think... You know, you you've already said something about this, but I just wonder if you could say something more about what it is that Cyprus represents. Because I'm just thinking about 
what my earlier readings of the play where maybe I was I would have thought of Cyprus as kind of a carnivalesque space or a place where you know the usual laws and regulations of Venice didn't really apply for a, for a few moments uh, this unusual moment where the wars finished very very quickly um and when I first got to your work, I sort of thought that you'd be arguing something a bit like that, you know, and I couldn't have been more wrong, you know. So I don't know, could you say something more about why that's so important to talk about Cyprus and, you know, maybe a bit more about that blind spot, where that blind spot comes? What is it that critics have been blind to? Yeah, I'll start by 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 saying that I don't think you are wrong in, in seeing it as, as a carnivalesque site. I think that's just a thread that hasn't been pulled enough, really. So if we're asking ourselves, you know, why, why, does, why does Othello believe what Cassio says? Why does he believe that Desdemona is, has been unfaithful to him when we can all see that she, you know, this isn't the case? But why does he fall for it? Why is it plausible? Well, we can only maybe just remind ourselves that to the early modern mind, Cyprus was beyond the limits of Europe. And it was a place that was associated with excess, with violence and with a kind of orgiastic excess. And the best representation of that is the goddess Venus, or Aphrodite, as she's called in, in, in Cyprus, who maybe today we think of as a, a kind of nice and um, kind of mainstream goddess who represents romantic love. So, you know, Cyprus tourism organization posters with, you know, the goddess Cyprus and lovers holding hands on the beach. But actually to the early modern mind, she was, she was more than that. She was pornographic. She was violent. And so if that kind of infidelity is going to occur anyway, anywhere, if the kind of violence that is associated with that is going to occur anywhere, it's going to occur in Cyprus. The very shift from Venus, from Venice, sorry, to Cyprus indicates a movement into a dangerous site, to somewhere that is dangerous, to somewhere that audiences and readers at the time would have associated with, with pleasure, but also with excess, both kind of sexual and um, physical and violent excess. So that thread that you mentioned, I don't think is wrong. I just think the logic of it has never properly been followed through because the focus has, has always been has always been Venice. I think also that the what Cyprus represents culturally to to the early modern mind has been touched upon, but it hasn't been fully explored. So that idea that the audience knows that eventually the Ottomans will arrive and take Cyprus. Yeah, the, the audience knows that the, the the Ottomans are arriving, and then the war that is supposed to happen doesn't happen, and then the war becomes a domestic one. This is a familiar trope of, of the island, but the importance of Cyprus as a kind of signifier of the advance of the Ottoman Empire is something that would have been really, really powerful to to the early modern mind. And I think we've we've never really fully explored that either. You know, what does that mean? What does that tell us about their understandings about that site? And what does that mean for, for us now? So it's placed in the kind of internal logic of the play, I think is really, really important and then doesn't get the attention that, that perhaps it deserves. And I'll say sort of incidentally as an aside here, that one of the reasons that is, uh, that it's considered to be kind of insignificant is because Cyprus is thought to not be depicted by Shakespeare in a very kind of detailed way. Um, I think Honigman, in his kind of famous edition of Othello, says, you know, we don't hear anything about Cyprus, really. And I think that that misses a trick. So I'll just give one example of, of, of the way in which Cyprus is present in ways that maybe we don't always think. Desdemona's arrival she arrives on the sands of Cyprus in the way that Venus does when she is born. 
she is genuflected to by the people of Cyprus, encouraged by Cassio in the way that the cult of Cyprus would have worshipped Venus. So if you, and this is such a famous image, it's the image of, of, of Venus arriving, you know, in the kind of conch shell, the vaginal conch shell, that arriving on the island, on the froth, on the foam of the sea. That would have been a striking image, I think, a very obvious image, an obvious parallel between Desdemona and Venus that is being made by, by the play, by the visual imagery of the play. And the fact that it isn't kind of explicit in the text, I think, means that we miss it. But that visual, as you know, Joel, is so important to the early modern stage. What is visually represented is so key. So I think that's one example of perhaps why we have maybe not seen Cyprus as being important, because it isn't depicted in quite the detail we would expect. But I would argue that that detail, when we scratch the surface, is there. Now, for me, I think the most important thing about all those things we have we have kind of discussed is what it tells us about Cyprus today. I'm going to kind of reduce the, the kind of ethnic strife in, in Cyprus to a couple of, of sentences, which doesn't do it justice, but obviously we have time constraints. Um, the two largest communities in Cyprus are the Greek-speaking and Turkish-speaking communities. And I, I use those phrases kind of politically because I don't want to say Greek Cypriot or Turkish Cypriot because that feeds into ideas of, of ethno-nationalism. But those are the two biggest communities. The island is divided. Those communities have been separated by war and the island is now is now split in two. That whole ethnic strife goes all the way back to 1571, as we've already said. But what Othello gives us is a snapshot of Cyprus before nationalism and before ethno-nationalism. So if we are thinking of Cyprus as, um, as a site of diversity, as a site of difference, then that is what we get in, a, in Othello. We get a place where we have Florentines, we have Spaniards, we have Venetians, we have someone of um, African heritage. And this is what Cyprus was in that period. And it is only subsequently that those kind of ethnic differences have hardened and eliminated all that diversity. So when I'm reading the play, what I'm recovering from Othello is that diversity that has been disavowed in modern Cyprus in favour of those ethno-nationalisms, in favour of a nationalism that is either profoundly Greek and associated with Athens or profoundly Turkish and associated with Ankara. And all of that is in the play, that kind of snapshot of a more diverse island, an island that is beyond simple kind of divisions of Greek and Turk. In fact, you know, the Greek doesn't even matter in, to, to Othello's Cyprus very much. So I think those things that we have spoken about, why it is important to the early modern mindset, how they would have viewed it, are really, really valuable for us in breaking down the kind of nationalisms that are present in Cyprus now. So it's a valuable literary tool for thinking politically about Cyprus today. What I'm what I'm struck by there as well is that we're not we're not debating whether like Shakespeare knew all about Cyprus or he'd been to Cyprus or he'd read all the books about what life in Cyprus was like. He clearly, you know, had got plenty of knowledge, but we're not debating, or, or tell me if I'm wrong, we're not debating whether he's got a truly authentic depiction of the place, but we are talking about sort of the discourse of Cyprus and how that discourse has been established and how that discourse has changed and how we might... Um, create a, a better way of talking about Cyprus, better way of talking about belonging to a place. Have I, have I understood you right there that we're sort of, we're, we're treating Shakespeare in that way as a, as a discursive intervention, but that's, that's every bit as real and as, has, has every bit as meaningful material impact as 
you know, uh, I don't know, political um, policy making or, or, you know, really accurate descriptions of things. Have I, have I understood you correctly there? Yeah, I mean, look, so Shakespeare couldn't have anticipated what would have happened in Cyprus in, in the 20th century, clearly. But I also think that, that Shakespeare probably understood and knew Cyprus better than, than, we, than we give him credit for. I mean, he, we know that he was reading about the, the Cyprus Wars, so the, war the wars between the Venetians and the Ottomans. He must have done to, to be writing this play. And there's so much information about Cyprus in there that he would have come across that we often don't factor in as a kind of paratext to Othello. But also he chooses to take his characters there. You know, his, he chooses to take his dramatis personae there. The, you know, Cynthia's kind of original, if we can use that word, we shouldn't really be using terms like original and authentic, Joel, but if we could just be use them for a minute, that original, that kind of base text that he's using, they never get to Cyprus. He chooses to send them there. He chooses to send his uh, dramatis personae to Cyprus for a reason. Um, so I think you're right. We're thinking about Cyprus discursively. But I think Shakespeare understood something about Cyprus. He understood its role as, a, as an island that was transferring from or had transferred from Christian to uh, Muslim control and why that was important and why it was relevant and an issue for, for Europe and how that would make his audience feel. And I think he also understood that Cyprus was a site of those excesses that we have mentioned and what those kind of gently invoke in the, in the mind of his audience. Okay, so th so I think this is this is really really good, and I think we're getting really well set up to talk a bit about um, the play Othello and a little bit of that that text in a minute. Just before we we actually read a bit of Shakespeare and a bit of George Seferis, do you think you could just give us a quick preview about what it is we get from reading Seferis's reading of Othello? That, that maybe we we wouldn't have got from generations of critics, scholars, performers uh, engaging with Shakespeare? What do we get from Seferis or what can we expect to get by the time we finish this podcast in a little while? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so projected into the future of this podcast, Joel, um, what we would hope to get is is the understanding that, that Seferis is probably the, the first kind of major cultural figure um, or literary figure or, 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 or critical reader of Othello who makes that connection between what is happening in Othello and its relevance to the, the politico-cultural landscape of, of Cyprus in the 20th century. Um, so he's the poem, just to, to kind of introduce it a little bit, is, is critiquing the, the crusaders' use of Cyprus. And it's doing that using a line from Othello, which we, of course, will come to, the famous line about goats and monkeys. And he's doing that as a pointed reference to the way that Cyprus was being treated by the British colonial administration. So he's drawing a parallel there between Richard the Lionheart's kind of treatment of Cyprus in the medieval period during the Crusades, during the Third Crusade, if I've got my crusade numbers right, um, if I've got my sequels right, um, and the way that, that Cyprus is, is kind of um, abused and disavowed by the British colonial administration. So he's making, uh, he's using Othello to make a political statement in the present. Um, and he's the first to do that, really. Um, the, the, the kind of, the only person who comes close to that at the time is Emrys Jones, the kind of famous Shakespeare critic, who, who kind of emphasises how important the Cyprus wars are as a kind of backdrop to, to Othello and that we shouldn't be reading the play without really understanding those kind of geopolitical tensions of the time. But that's kind of historical backdrop that Emrys Jones is drawing our attention to. I think 
first of all, so Ferris gets there first, but he's also making that political statement. He's, he's doing what, you know, we don't do enough of as scholars, which is to say, this is why it's important now. Uh, this is why this text is important now. This is why it's relevant now. This is how we use it now to think about the world that we live in and the space that we live in right now politically. All right, fantastic. Well, thanks for giving us that bit of a bit of a preview because I feel like we're sort of only gradually introducing the audience to what the podcast episode is actually about. But hopefully you'll gather by now. Yeah, we're talking about Othello. We're talking about Cyprus and uh, we're talking about goats and monkeys. So... Um, I reckon now's the time to just have a bit of a read of a couple of sections of, of Othello. So we've maybe got just a little under 15 minutes or so. We can have a bit of a chat about these. Just, you know, see see where we're coming from with goats and monkeys. So the first bit I'm going to read um, is a few lines from the character of Iago, famous antagonist from the play, um, and he's been spending quite a long time now goading Othello into to believing that Othello's wife Desdemona is having sex with, with Cassio. As far as we know, Desdemona and Cassio are completely innocent of anything uh, in this, this regard, but Iago is making, making, making Othello believe that. Um, so Iago, instead of insisting... So no, he is insisting that his imputations against Desdemona uh, and her fidelity are true. Um, and as he does that, Othello grows increasingly insistent on his need for what he calls ocular proof, like actually seeing uh, the truth of this, this allegation. As part of this improvisation of about the, the, the truth and the evidence for something that absolutely hasn't happened, Iago suggests it would be very difficult to actually catch them in the act of having sex, even if they were extremely libidinous, even if they were extremely randy. Um, but plenty of uh, alternative evidence, and this is Iago's case, could give Othello the satisfaction he might want. So just four lines from, from Iago here. He says, where's satisfaction? It is impossible you should see this. Were they as prime as goats, as hot as monkeys, as salt as wolves in pride, and fools as gross as ignorance made drunk? So the, the, the essence of those lines, there's no way you could see them doing it, even if they were... Uh, at it all the time and completely stupid as well, you know, completely showing off how uh, how stupid they were. Um, and the, the connection there between goats and monkeys as particularly um, lascivious creatures, I understand that is in line with general Renaissance uses of those tropes. Shakespeare isn't doing anything um, innovative there, I don't think, but it's quite um, degrading, we might say, to talk about, uh, you know, Desdemona, sorry, and uh, and Cassio in this way. Um, but I wonder what 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 have you got to say about that that line? This initial appearance of the goats and monkeys, um, Roger. Do you want to give us a quick couple of ideas before we move on to kind of the more important uh, line from the play? Yeah, I think we're kind of rolling back to, to one of the ideas we mentioned earlier about how um, there was a, a particular associations with Cyprus. There's obviously particular associations with, with Venice as well. You know, Venetian women had a particular reputation and Iago is kind of playing on that. He's he's situating Othello as being outside of, of uh, Venetian society, as not really knowing it, as not really understanding it. 
And I mean, he even says to, to Othello, I know our country disposition well. In Venice, they do not let heaven, they do let heaven see the pranks they dare not show their husbands. So he's saying, you know, he's building up that argument that there's something that Othello just cannot know, cannot see, cannot understand about Venetian society. And it's, I think it's a really, really interesting argument that Iago is constructing there. Because what he's doing is he's positioning Othello in, in such a way that Othello will always feel like an outsider. And I think that is such a kind of common and universal feeling, isn't it? That feeling about of, of being outside. But it's particularly relevant, I think, if we're thinking about Othello as um, someone of African heritage in a white country, as someone who is an immigrant as well. That constant feeling nagging away at you that, that, that may be you don't know something, maybe you don't understand something. So the, the fact that Iago is playing on that, you know, Venetian women are like this and you don't understand that. But again, it's not just Venetian women, it's Venetian, it's a Venetian woman in Cyprus where strange things happen. So I think he's it's he's kind of playing on that, um, on that idea and, and pushing Othello outside of the Venetian core, but also pushing him outside of the of the Venetian core in a sight where Othello might already be feeling anxious. And I think that's a really valuable account. And I think that line, it is impossible, you should see this. Um, and, you know, you should see it. It's, it. That's the ocular dimension, isn't it? There's there's no way you're going to get what you want. Um, you don't... Yeah, and, and sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Joel, actually. While you were reading that, I was thinking that, you know, th- something that I'd never thought of about with that line... What is the intonation of that line? Is Iago saying it is impossible that you should see it? You know, not just that one could see it, but that you, you, Othello, being in the position that you are, it's impossible that you should see it. You cannot see this. You cannot understand it. You don't get it. Um, so, so maybe the intonation of that line as well is really could be really, really interesting. And I mean, I, I know you've been watching some kind of versions, some filmed and theatrical versions of, of, the, of the play. I don't know if there's been particular ways in which that has been emphasized to make it more targeted at Othello. Okay, well, look, really interesting stuff. So we're going to move forward a little bit now. Um, I, I haven't put the the action scene numbers on my on my, uh, my 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 notes for today, so you can work it out, readers, listeners. You know, it's not too hard. But I think we're now in. Act four of the play, um, and Othello's pretty been pretty much convinced by Iago that Desdemona is is behaving this way with Cassio, and uh, you know he's pretty upset about it. So, um, Lodovico turns up from Venice and tells Des- tells Othello that he's going to be sent back to uh, to Venice. Uh, he's going to be relieved of his duties in uh, Cyprus, not for anything he's done wrong, but um, just because, you know, Othello's a paid soldier, mercenary, you know, the Venetians have, have had their their use of him in this situation, he's going to go back to Venice. While Lodovico's there, and like there's a load of people standing around, Othello hits Desdemona, which is uh, pretty, pretty shocking. Um, and... Othello leaves the stage and then Ludovico and Iago talk about what a surprise this is, what a terrible surprise it is. Um, so I'm just going to, I'm, I'm just, there's three parts, but I'm going to read them all. I'm not going to do them in different voices. I'm just going to say who they are. So we've got Othello and then Lodovico and then Iago. 
so um, we're going to hear those goats and monkeys again, but in a slightly different way. So it's going to be quite interesting. So Othello says, talking about Desdemona, I, you did wish that I would make her turn. Sir, she can turn and turn and yet go on and turn again. And she can weep, sir, weep. And she's obedient, as you say, obedient, very obedient. Proceed you in your tears. Concerning this, sir, oh, well-painted passion, I am commanded home. Get you away. I'll send for you anon. Sir, I obey the mandate and will return to Venice. Hence, avaunt. Cassio shall have my place. And sir, tonight, I do entreat that we may sup together. You are welcome, sir, to Cyprus, goats and monkeys. Lodovico then says, a fellow leaves, Lodovico says, is this the noble Moor whom our full senate call all in all sufficient? Is this the nature whom passion could not shake, whose solid virtue the shot of accident nor dart of chance could neither graze nor pierce? Iago, he is much changed. And they carry on a little bit, but I think that that gives a sort of a summary quotation of, of what's going on. So, so what do these goats and monkeys say? You're welcome, sir, to Cyprus, goats and monkeys. Just, uh, you know, those goats and monkeys, we could almost throw that along. We could almost cut that line, right? Couldn't we? Why do you think that's an important line? Um, I wonder, is there, is there some reasons that this line's actually become important for you in particular? Um, why should we pay attention to this line? Well, I think traditionally we've paid attention to that line because it, it indicates the extent to which Iago has has got into Othello's head. Right? Iago has put that idea, that, that that sexual image, in in Othello's mind, and he's now reproducing it himself. You know, he's uh, the transference has kind of happened, and uh, he's reproducing that that sexual imagery is so kind of deeply ingrained in his mind he can't he can't um, he can't get away from it. So I suppose the the traditional way of of reading it is just to to see that moment as Iago's victory right? when Othello is is reproducing Iago's discourse that that's the moment in which Iago has won. Um, for me personally, it was always a really really interesting line, just because it, it felt so uncanny for me. I felt like I'd I'd heard it or um, I'd seen it somewhere before. It seemed familiar to me, yet I couldn't quite put my finger on why. Um, so it's probably worth explaining why that might have been familiar to me. My, obviously, my, my background is, is Cypriot. My, my parents are both Cypriot, and my father was involved in, in the very kind of anti-colonial struggle during the 1950s to, to against the British colonialism that we're kind of concerned with or that Seferis is concerned with in, in that poem. And so in our house, there was always kind of discussion uh, about that period. There was always pamphlets and literature that he would have had during that period that he would have handed out. So it may well be that I would have come across that phrase, either hearing it or reading it, or in some way being aware of it, whether it was in the house or visiting Cyprus, which we did um, very, very often. But I couldn't, um, I couldn't really pin it down. Um, but it was, I suppose, the the it was the crack in the play, it was the fissure in the play that made me want it to kind of open it up a little bit more and kind of follow the initial thought I had that that this play must be important in some way to Cyprus, seeing as it is mostly set there. 
and that people don't tend to talk about it in terms of Cyprus. Of course, you know, got my goat if we're going to kind of follow that animalistic kind of thing. Um, but it was that line really that really got me thinking very carefully. You know, there must be something here because I recognized it and I didn't understand why and I couldn't really figure out why. The link to Seferis actually was um, was coincidental. I, I don't think I knew that Seferis had used that line unless I'd heard that poem without kind of knowing about it or that it was just in kind of um, common usage in Cyprus or in the Cypriot community in London in some way. So, so that line was was really important for me personally because it was a very uncanny moment in that it felt like something I should recognise. And of course, I would find out later down the line that this was this line was you know about me, about my family. It was about our past and and everything about our family history was what I would bring to bear on the play. And it was really that line that sparked that, if you like, that really made me think. You know, there must be something in this because I know this line. And I can't figure out why. And I still, to this day, don't know what it is, um, what it is that, um, how that, how that was planted. You know, what, what it, where I heard it, where I read it, where I saw it. I think we will speak later when we focus on Sepharis about where that line was kind of circulating in, in, um, in the Cypriot cultural sphere. And it may well be that I just kind of absorbed it from that. But I can't put my finger on it exactly where that was. All I knew was when I heard that line, it was it seemed to speak to me in a way that I couldn't quite figure out. Yeah, so I think that's that's maybe a really interesting introduction to the to the line. And I don't think, yeah, we we maybe don't want to spend too much time talking about it right now because I think actually um Seferis is going to plunge us into that discussion a bit more. Um so so the line again, I'll, I'll repeat it again because it's easy to forget. Um so it's a fellow is is exit exit line saying, You are welcome, sir, to Cyprus goats and monkeys and and the goats and monkeys can be read as a as a kind of a shout it could be read as a cry it could be read as um a kind of quiet exclamation of frustration um it's it's you know you, you you're totally right roger about this kind of iago infiltrating othello's mind uh, but exactly how that appears on stage um you, you, there's all sorts of ways of interpreting it um and you know what what it means in that case i think does you know there's so much latitude for for reading it that we 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 maybe don't need to to explore all of the avenues but also you've got that phrase you are welcome sir you're welcome sir to cyprus um there's a bit of a double edge there isn't there that on the one hand you know here i am i'm in charge of cyprus right now in you come welcome but on the other hand well just just take it you may as well take it i don't care anymore and you know Othello doesn't have a reason to particularly care about Cyprus. Yeah, and I think that that line is in in just in the context of the play is is really really interesting. I mean, it's a it's in many ways a kind of wish fulfillment, isn't it? It's it's the figure who it's the outsider, the figure who we are worried is going to turn Turk, saying to the 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 Christian arriver, "This is your island. Why don't you take it?" It's it's in many ways kind of fulfilling a kind of Western European dream, isn't it? You can you can have it. I don't want it. It's yours. It can be a, a white Christian island. You're welcome to it. Um, so th there is that, and and that's really, you know, even that I think that interpretation is really interesting from a Cypriot perspective because of course Cyprus is an island that is 
an island of racial diversity as well that it, of course, has kind of tried to disavow as it's wanted to be European as time has progressed. But also, what, what is Cyprus? What's he talking about? Is he talking about Cyprus? Is he talking about Desdemona? You're welcome to her as well. Has she become a kind of cipher for the island? We've spoken about how she seems to be in a kind of really strangely oppositional way connected visually with Venus. So, you know, who is Cyprus? Who, who exactly, what exactly is he speaking about there? I think it's a really, really interesting line. What is he, if he is saying you're welcome to it, what is it that he is handing over exactly? With some sense of the possibilities of that throwaway line, I, sorry, I don't want to call it a throwaway line, but that line that might be cut from many number of performances with some sense of the possibilities there. Let's move on to Seferis and, um, you know, we'll get his reading of that line, which I think is uh, a, you know, an interesting and important one. So um, George Seferis, let's just say a little bit about him, might not be familiar to, to all um, English readers or, or readers from, from the Anglo Anglosphere. Um, he's a, an important poet. He lived from 1900 to 1701. <sighs> from 1900 to 1971. You can tell it's getting a little bit late. Uh, he was a career diplomat and he also managed to win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1963. So he wasn't a professional poet, but he, he you know, became one of, the, one of the first Greek people to win the Nobel Prize. The only Greek person to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Roger? Uh, no, they say actually Lydia's won it as well. Okay, okay. So not, not the only one, but um, you know, that was a big achievement. There's a big achievement for anyone. Um, so that prize was based on his great poetry, his prose writings, and his translations into Greek. Maybe other things as well. So overall, completely fair to call him a major figure in European late modernism. And more specifically, maybe a good major figure for the understanding of a specifically Greek literary canon as a part of a new Greek nationalism in the wake of centuries of rule from the Ottoman Empire. And I hope I've sort of got my understanding of that, broadly speaking, correct there, Roger. Now, the significance that we can, we can evaluate in that way is actually matched by a, a near ubiquitous popularity in Greece. Um, so one example of that is that some of his, some lines from his 1930s poem, Mythistolima, were read in the 2004 Olympics opening ceremony. Are there other ways that we might gauge that ubiquity of George Seferis in, in Greek uh, culture, Roger? I suppose he's closer to Burns than he is to Eliot. I mean, you know, he's I wouldn't necessarily call him a, a national poet, but in terms of, you know, everyone having heard of him and knowing knowing who he is uh, and maybe not even having much knowledge of his work, but just knowing the name, then, yeah, he's, he's more Burns than Eliot, I think. OK, well, that's a really, really nice way of, of, of seeing him. Um, yeah, well, help, helpful for me because it's not like I really I really know, but that helps me understand. So let's take a look at this, this poem, which is called, um, what is it called? Neophytus... Inglistos Speaks. That's what the poem is called in English. And this poem uh, is, is maybe not one of the most famous poems by Seferis. We've, we've seen a couple of critics, haven't we, Roger, kind of claim that this is like the absolute most well-known, most famous bits of his oeuvre. And maybe it's not, but it's, it's still a sort of second-tier feature from, from the, the work of a very, very important poet. So it's, it's, it's not too shabby. Yeah, I, th I think that that its position perhaps depends on on 
which kind of Greek you are, right? If you're a if you're an Athenian Greek, then then maybe it isn't important. But it's obviously um, to Cypriot Hellenism, it's obviously a really really important kind of poem. And I think actually we we spoke when we met before this podcast about. Um, about uh, a critic who had, who had labelled the lines from it as the most famous lines in Greek literature, um, and uh, that that critic is a Cypriot critic. So I think in in her kind of world of Greek literature, I think that probably is is fair enough. I think in the in the broader Hellenic sphere, that then maybe it isn't. But I, I think that in itself is kind of interesting in terms of uh, something that maybe we'll come back to when we think about Seferis, that relationship between Greece and Cyprus and what is valued and what isn't. The the poem about Cyprus is, is maybe less famous or not of that much interest to, to mainland Greek culture as it would be in, in Cyprus, where, of course, it's really important. OK, well, in fact, and, you know, having said that, the one, the one Greek whose opinion I did try to uh, corral for this, my my mum's friend Yanni. He just seemed maybe you remember those emails. He just seemed completely outraged by every. Yeah, question. but Yanni was crazy, man. I wouldn't trust Yanni. He was totally nuts. <laughs> okay, yeah, but he, okay, well, and and but, but he's he's an Athenian Greek, so maybe you know if you if if it was from Cyprus, that'd be a different question. Well, anyway, that's, that's, that's a different matter. We'll leave those, <laughs> those those emails aside. Okay, and but you know, in terms of measures of this poem's esteem, it's it's also a kind of quirky weird thing that it's not included in the major translation into English of Seferis's collected poems you know collected it's, it's not collected it's just quite a few of them the translators um Edmund Keeley and uh, Philip Sherard say it's because it's rhymed and uh you know it's really hard to communicate all those technical features but I mean you think I mean I think we we, we it's no surprise that there's a bit more to it than that. I mean, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think, look, I think you, we, we've been thinking about this poem for a while and it is a difficult poem, man. I mean, we're not going to kind of uh, try and convince our our, read, our listeners that it's a piece of cake. It's a hard poem. And so I can understand why the translators, with all that's going on in that poem, might just have thought, you know what, <laughs> it's been a long day. We've translated a lot of poems and that one is just really hard. Let's just leave it. However... However, the fact that it is rhyme, it is rhymed, and that that doesn't fit in with, you know, the rest of the the oeuvre that they were translating, I think is is a bit of a cop out. And what I would say about it is that that omission to me does feel, whether um, consciously or not, quite significant because we we spoke about Cyprus as a blind spot, and I think one thing to understand about the Cyprus's position in the Cypriot Empire in the British Empire was that it started off as a really, really important site. And then once the Suez Canal was opened, you know, Cyprus wasn't needed anymore. Strategically, it wasn't needed. So it became this kind of outpost that that was neglected and wasn't properly taken care of and was was kind of disavowed. Um, And I think that attitude towards Cyprus, that kind of almost lack of knowledge about it, about its colonial history, that lack of interest in it, from the very people who were who were controlling the island, is kind of replayed in the in the academic discourses that we're seeing. We're seeing this kind of neglect of Cyprus, which I think is a kind of smaller or microcosmic repetition of that colonial tendency to to ignore Cyprus or ignore the relevance of it, or, or to to try and kind of sweep it away in favour of more important things. And I think that maybe this is going on with this translation as well. Why, why that poem? Why that poem, which is making the most explicit criticism of colonial attitudes towards Cyprus. Why is that the one that the translators um, choose to omit? That seems to me more than coincidental. 
And it could well be. It could well be just that it's a tough poem, as we know, and it doesn't fit in with what they were doing. But I think there may be more to it, that given the content of the poem, that this is the one that is cut and not translated. And it might just be that the criticism that is being made there is such a complex one. It's one that we have so sort of dived into so much and are still trying to work out that the work was was hard, you know, and that's understandable. But I, I think there's more to it than just, well, you know, it rhymes and we didn't really like that. It didn't fit in with everything else. I think that that <laughs> I think that hides a kind of a much bigger narrative about attitudes towards Cyprus. All right. Well, let's get this poem back on the the table. And I think you're gonna do us a lovely thing and read it in Greek so we can hear some of the rhythms, some of the rhyme, uh, even if we don't actually uh, understand it. And there is a translation of it, which you, you've managed to track down from the early 80s by John uh, Stathatos. Um, very difficult to, to access, completely inaccessible in any ordinary forms. Um, so I think you're going to read us the Greek and we're just going to listen to it nicely uh, and Greek Greek speakers in the audience will will, will enjoy that especially. Um, and then you're going to read the translation. So, the you know, because most of the audience is English speakers, aren't they? Um, so everyone can get on board with the, the ideas. So you're going to give that a go for us, Roger? I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to preface it by apologising to the Greek listeners, first of all. And also, um, this might take more than one attempt. Neophidos or englistos mila. Το δε βασιλέι εισαγγείο κατά κλειή εγκαστελείων καλουμένων μαρκάπο. Κατά δε του ομοίου αυτό σαλαχαντινού ανήσας μηδέν ο αλητήριος, ηνήσε τούτο και μόνον, διαπράσας την χώραν Λατίνης χρυσιού χιλιάδων λιτρών διακόσιων. Διό και πολλής ολόλιγμος και αφόρητος ο καπνός, ως προηρείται ο ελθόν εκ του βορρά. Υπέρογγες, αρχιτεκτονικές, λαρίων, φαμακούστα, μπουφαβέντο, σχεδόν σκηνικά. Ήμασταν συνηθισμένοι να το στοχαζόμαστε αλλιώς το Ιησούς Χριστός νικά, που είδαμε κάποτε στα τείχη της βασιλεύουσας τα φαγόμενα από γύφτο τσάντιρα και στεγνά χορτάρια με τους μεγάλους πύργους κατάχαμα σαν ένας δυνατού που έχασε τα ριγμένα ζάρια. Για μας ήταν άλλο πράγμα ο πόλεμος για την πίστη του Χριστού και για την ψυχή του ανθρώπου καθισμένη στα γόνατα της υπερμάχου στατηγού που είχε στα μάτια ψηφιδωτό τον καημό της Ρωμιοσύνης, εκείνου του πελάγου, τον καημό σαν ύβρε το ζήγασμα της καλοσύνης. Ας παίζουν τώρα μελοδράματα στα σκηνικά των σταυροφόρων λουζινιά και ας φλωμονούνε με τον καπνό που μας κουβάλισαν από το βοριά. Ας τους να, τρώ, να τρώγονται και να ανεμοδέρνονται όσαν το κατέργο που δένει μούδες. Καλώς μας ήρθατε στην Κύπρο άρχοντι, τράγοι και μαϊμούδες. Do you want me to go straight on to reading it in um, English, Joel? Yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it. That's wonderful. Let's hear it in English. So this is Neophidos Englistos Speaks. So it's basically Neophidos the Hermit Speaks. As for King Isaac, he imprisoned him in the castle known as Mark Capo. And as for his colleague Saladin, 
The rogue took no action against him, but instead sold the country to the Latins for 1,200 measures of gold, which was the cause of great lamentation. And as foretold, the smoke come from the north became unbearable. Overbearing structures. Hilarion famagusta bufavento, mere backdrops. Hardly how we used to conceive of that Jesus Christ triumphs, once seen above the walls of the imperial city, now pocked with weeds and hovels and the great towers cast down like some defeated giant's dice. It had meant something else to us, this war for Christ's faith and for man's soul cradled by Our Lady of Victories, her eyes holding the anguish of the Greeks like a mosaic, the anguish of that sea at the approach of kindness. What if they strut their Lusignum melodramas against crusader backdrops while we gag on the smoke from northern torches? Let them hack at each other, beating the wind like a galley before the storm. You are welcome to Cyprus lords, goats and monkeys. Oh, that was just fantastic, Roger. Thanks so much for, for both the Greek and the, and the English. And one, one thing that just struck me there, like in, in the Greek, the I mean, the rhymes are pretty strong. Like, you know, you... you I was following it along with with my very very elementary knowledge of the Greek alphabet, and it, they're very very clear rhymes. But in the English translation, um, and and the way you read that, you know, they really run over those lines are quite a lot, aren't they, to to fit the sense in? And I guess I uh, I don't want to sort of go on about the form because I don't think that's what we're here to talk about. Um, but I just wonder what. What, what do you think about that? Because you can understand the Greek version and I can't. Like, are Seferis's lines like really neat and self-contained or is there an enjambment there that I'm, I can't quite uh, understand because I don't understand Greek? Um, let me just get my copy back up. I don't know what I've done with it now. Um, yeah, they are quite complex and there is enjambment and they do, um, they do overrun. Um, and there isn't a kind of... Um, there isn't a, a kind of fixed meter or uh, or anything like that, but I think that's part of the part of the beauty of it that it has this kind of flexible form, and of course it starts with a quote from from Neophidos, so it's the whole form is kind of flexible, and I think that's kind of reflected in in the lines themselves, and maybe that flexibility, that lack of form, is is telling us something as well. Maybe it's making a statement about the the kind of the lack of form in the way that the, the island has been treated or the lack of form in the history of the island. I'm not sure exactly, but there is a kind of, there is a, a definite rhyme to it, as you've kind of heard, but the kind of rhythm, the rhythm, the finding of that rhyme as you read it isn't, isn't easy, to be honest. It doesn't, it doesn't read like a sonnet, put it that way, where you, you kind of feel that, that kind of, that consistent kind of movement and, and maybe that lack of a consistent movement is a nice kind of metaphor for the, the kind of the movements the the inconsistent movements of history if you like I think that's a bit of a stretch but uh... <laughs> <laughs> thanks mate <laughs> but, but I uh yeah I get I think, I think that's an interesting thing that I think yeah I, I guess I was wondering you've answered the questions I was wondering about so let's carry on so let's let's just pad out some information here for for people who might not know, for example, who Neophytus is. So he's starting off with this long quotation from Neophytus and the, the, the title of the poem is Neophytus Speaks. So we need to know who Neophytus is. And, and you've told me that the name Neophytus, that is a very, very common uh, Cypriot and Greek name, um, but maybe people don't necessarily know even who, who that is behind the... the yeah, so Neophytus is a Cypriot saint. 
Um, and he was famous for, for being a recluse. He lived in a cave and um, he just kind of lived in a cave and wrote. And you can still visit his cave uh, in, in Paphos. It's near Paphos, I think, um, which obviously is a really, really kind of popular tourist destination. A lot of expats. Um, and uh, yeah, his, he, he lived in this cave and wrote. And that is what... Um, uh, Seferis is using, he's using his writings uh, and taking from those writings and he was obviously writing at the time of, of the Crusades as well so he's there at the moment uh, that this is happening so he's offering his observations now um, sorry did you want to say something Joe? Okay so it was just to kind of to pin down how we're reading the poem so should we imagine it as we, we've got our Monk Neophytus, is it the 12th century he was writing in the 1100s? Is that about the time where he yeah, was yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so he's there in the 1100s and he's giving us some of his opinions about Cyprus. Is that how we should be understanding sort of the point of view and the speaker of this poem? Yeah, that's right. And I think we, we can take it a, a kind of step further by saying that what Neophytus is articulating and what Seferis is really wanting to, to pick up on is not only the, the position that this puts Cyprus in, but the position that it puts kind of Cyprus as a Christian and Hellenic island in. So that, that kind of those things go together, especially for Seferis, but also for, for Neophytus, who would have understood his kind of Cypriotness in a kind of Byzantine sense, right, as being part of the Byzantine Empire. So um, okay, so 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 we're now bringing in those references to Christianity and religion, which mm-hmm. um, I don't know when you sort of come to a European poem from a country that you, you don't necessarily know the ins and outs of the history of. It's difficult to sometimes tell whether that's something very specific or something quite vague. But you're 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 kind of telling us that the. Um, these references like uh, this war for Christ's, it's like these, these, this third stanza, it had meant something else to us, this war for Christ's faith and for man's soul cradled by Our Lady of Victories, her eyes holding the anguish of the Greeks like a mosaic. Um, or in the second line, hardly now we used to conceive of that Jesus Christ triumphs once seen over the walls of the imperial city. So I'm, I'm just sort of trying to slow us down a little bit because you, could you just make it really clear to me when we're talking about that Christianity in a in a in a Cyprus context or in or in a Greek context, why is that so important? What is it that's so crucial for whether that's for Neophytus or Seferis or someone in the middle? What's so important about that? Yeah, so so Cyprus was part of the Byzantine Empire which is, of course, the continuation, the kind of Eastern continuation of the Roman Empire. But the Byzantine Empire is a Greek-speaking Christian empire. And Cyprus was part of it. Cyprus is, at the time that Neophytus is writing, no longer part of it. He starts with King Isaac, who was, I, pretty, I think he's the first king or emperor of Cyprus post Cyprus leaving the Byzantine Empire. I think it's Isaac who kind of takes them out of it. Um, and Cyprus later will rejoin the Byzantine Empire at a later date. But this is the kind of, I think I've got that right. This is a kind of interregnum when it is no longer part of the Byzantine Empire. So for Neophytus, that kind of concept of Christianity is bound up with membership of of the Byzantine Empire, of a Greek-speaking Christian empire. So being taken out of that, 
is the problem. What Seferis is interested as someone who is really interested in Hellenism, who's really interested in, in that kind of Hellenic Christian world, is of that whole long tradition of Greekness that stretches back to the Byzantine Empire. So they are part of a continuum, if you like. Um, Neophytus is mourning the fact that um, people from outside of the Byzantine Empire, the kind of Western European crusading forces, are treating Cyprus in a particular way, and that Cyprus is not part of the Byzantine Empire. And Seferis is picking up on that because he's interested in, in exploring that long tradition of Hellenism that stretches back to that Byzantine Empire. I don't know if that's um, cleared it up, Joel. I hope it has. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's it, it is it, it is help that is helpful, Roger. And I think it's just it's, I'm only sort of sort of putting stoppers on a little bit because actually Seferis is taking us on such a journey here through history, and it's really easy just to um, kind of neglect what, what's going on. So in that first line, so uh, he, and, and I, I'm just trying to sort of pin that down because I feel like that'll help us a little bit. So he said, overbearing structures, Hilarion, Famagusta, Bufavento, mere backdrops, hardly how, hardly how we used to conceive of that Jesus Christ triumph once seen above the walls of the Imperial City. Now, when Seferis so or when Neophytus, whoever we should see it as, talks about mere backdrops. And by the way, those Hilarion Famagusta Bufavento, these are kind of important uh, landmarks, important uh, man-made landmarks and castles, defences. Is that is that right in, in Cyprus? Yeah, they're, they're, they're ancient. They're all ancient castles. Why why are they mere backdrops? That seems quite loaded, doesn't it? What What is it that's made them mere backdrops? And again, I'm sort of asking the same question, but is it, are we in like the year 1100 saying these things are mere backdrops? Or is actually are we have we moved into a different time period and they've become mere backdrops? What what's that phrase mere backdrop? What's that all about? Yeah, well, I mean, my understanding of it, my reading of it, is that he's um, bearing in mind that all those structures are in the north of Cyprus, and that um, Richard the First, Richard Lionheart, would have come into Cyprus through the south. That there's a okay, very obvious so kind of. And so this is Richard Lionheart, who's crusading off to the Holy Land, east of Cyprus. He's popped into Cyprus for a visit. He's coming to Cyprus from the south. Sorry, have I got that right? That, that's right. Okay, so okay. Let, let's go. He's, he's, he's shipwrecked there, or part of his fleet is shipwrecked there. So he has to go there. And um, I think people on his crew are um, captured by Isaac, by King Isaac. And he wants them back. There's a lot of toing and froing. Eventually, um, Richard Lyhan takes the island and he puts Isaac in chains. He puts him in silver chains, actually, because he promised him he wouldn't put him in iron chains. So he puts him in silver chains. Um, and he gets married there at that point as well. And then he moves on. Um, so that's the kind of historical scene. I think what Neophytus is saying, that these kind of these castles, these incredible structures that are tied in to the history of Cyprus are just are mere backdrops to the kind of whims of the crusaders who are coming in, taking the island and then moving on to, to their battles with Saladin and, and so on and so forth, who is also mentioned in, in the poem. So I think that's why they are mere backdrops. They are kind of representatives of the importance of Cyprus as a site of its own kind of history. Again, particularly, I think Neophytus is, is harking back to that Byzantine history, that Byzantine character. And those are not important. Those things are not important to the crusaders who come and take over the island. 
Okay, so spoken through someone who is representative of a Hellenic um, identity um, in Cyprus, there's a bitterness in that expression mere backdrops, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, look, look what you've reduced us to. Right? Yeah, okay. So I think, and, and I think that sort of, it kind of announces the tone of the poem, like in a way that it's taken me quite a while to sort of pick up um, that, there's all this unstated stuff that's going on with the Crusades that, that just isn't coming in there. So, okay, so that's, I think that does actually, though, sets us up in kind of what's going on at the opening of the poem. And and maybe before we, we should, you know, we need to get to the end, don't we? Because we need to talk about the goats and monkeys. Um, but maybe just another sort of short quotation to pick up on and just sort of explore and just see what's on all, all about. Um, it's, in the fourth stanza, where he talks about Our Lady of Victories. Uh, so it's this war for Christ's faith and for man's soul, cradled by Our Lady of Victories, her eyes holding the anguish of the Greeks like a mosaic, the anguish of that sea at the approach of kindness. And this war for Christ's faith, are we now talking about the Crusades again? Or are we talking about something different? Um, when we talk about the anguish of the Greeks, my understanding is that's um, a kind of a slightly a necessarily reductive translation um, that, that they that Stathatos has done to help us just be able to read it. But do you think there's something in that in the original Greek that we could, we we need to know about there? Um, and and what's this anguish of the seas? So I think I feel that like there's a lot of quite emotive, high, um, you know, highly important words going on in those in those lines. But I just can't quite understand what they're all about. So do you think you could take us through them? Yeah. So let's start with that word Greeks. I mean, in in Cephas's um, original is Romiosinis, which is um, a kind of another term for Greekness, I suppose. But it's one that has its etymological root in Roman, again, linking those two empires. It's, it's about that kind of Greekness that is connected to the Byzantine Empire. And for Cyprus, I think that is a, a, particularly, um, a particularly relevant term because it's become an insult as well. So um, obviously the two communities are always trading insults, but one of the insults that you would use against a, a Greek Cypriot if you were Turkish Cypriot or Turkish-speaking Cypriot would be to call them Rum. So uh, Roman, basically, you call them Rum. Um, so that term, Romeosinis, has a, a particular relevance to Cyprus, but it's also a term that expresses Greekness as being part of a Byzantine tradition. Um, and I suppose why we've got Greeks instead of some kind of, uh, I don't know what phrase you'd use if you were translating it, sort of Roman or Roman types, I suppose that's the difficulty of it. I think it's sensible if you're doing an English translation for English readers to to use the term Greeks because it's it's obviously immediately accessible. But that translation also, we lose that nuance of Romeo Sinus, which is, again, taking us back to that Byzantine Empire and again, has that relevance to Cyprus, where it's kind of been twisted and turned on its head as a as a as a kind of insult as well. Okay, so just explain to me then the anguish of the Greeks, the anguish of the uh, is it Romiosini, the that anguish. What is that anguish? Well, these are Seferis's words now. 
So I think he's speaking trans historically about the anguish of the Greeks under the Ottoman Empire, the collapse of uh, the Byzantine Empire, the fall of Constantinople. And he's I think he's drawing a kind of very clear linear historical line between that and the issues in Cyprus in 1955, which just to briefly explain, it wasn't just that Cyprus was fighting for independence, it was fighting for union with Greece. So the movement that was fighting for independence was a right-wing nationalist movement. And, it, you know, there's so much ambivalence about it in Cyprus because on the one hand it is anti-colonial, but the other hand it's also kind of extremely nationalist and wanted union with Greece. And this is where I, I have a problem with Seferis in that he's, he's kind of recapitulating these kind of nationalisms, but he's drawing a direct line between that... Um, tradition of Byzantine Greekness and all the horrors they have suffered at the hands mostly of the Ottoman Turks and what is happening now or now in 19 in in the early 1950s when there is a struggle for the, the struggle for independence is kind of growing okay so that I think that's that's helpful to to explain that because I think one of the challenges of the poem is if we we've we've started with the voice of Neophytus in the year 1100 but then sort of gradually it just becomes like you know, we're not quite sure what time period, and I think you're right. And it's, it's, there's a, there's an authorial pose there of reflecting over the over the centuries, and certainly soon after the anguish of the Greeks, the anguish of the Riomiusini, um, it's it's a there's a stanza. What if they struck their Lucinian melodramas against Crusader backdrops? Um, so the the Lucinian uh, colonization of Cyprus. Uh, from from France, what century was that in, Roger? So that that happens. So that happens at the end of the twelfth and the beginning of thirteenth, I think. So uh, it becomes Lusignan at the point that because this is the late eleven hundred, so it becomes Lusignan at the point at the point that Richard the Lionheart sells it to Guy de Lusignan, whatever that is. Is it in the late eleven hundreds, the early twelve hundreds? I'm not entirely sure. Round about then. Okay, but the, but again, that Lucinian melodramas against crusader backdrops. So it's in at the start of the poem, um, the, the glorious Byzantine history that was the backdrop. But now in in the thirteenth century, there's another backdrop. It's the crusaders who are now the backdrops, and there's another um, layer. And so I guess the the implication. Well, I, I think it's. I think it's. Sorry, Joel. I, I think it, it's like it's more kind of interconnected than that because there was there were so many deals being broken at the time. I think Guy de Lusignan supported Richard the Lionheart in Cyprus. Certain deals were made and then Cyprus was given or sold to, to Guy de Lusignan. So I think you know that they were they were all crusading together, but they had their own kind of their own different reasons, their own, and I'm not a, a, an expert on the on the Crusades, but they had their own reasons for doing so and their own political motivations and their own things that they wanted to get out of it as well. So if we've got all that going on, and then the final two lines, let them hack at each other, beating the wind like a galley before the storm. You are welcome to Cyprus, lords, goats and monkeys. And so I'm just, I'm just trying to pitch my understanding of it. So them here would be anyone who's uh, passed through Cyprus on a crusade. It's anyone who's colonised Cyprus, who's not a proper Greek. Um, but you are welcome to Cyprus. Who is who is he addressing there? Who is the you? Who is the you? Yeah, I think 
I think that's a that's a good question, and I think it's d- deliberately ambiguous, isn't it? Um, first of all, who is he addressing historically? Is he is he speaking to the British? Is that because I think as we as we've spoken, as we might go on to to say that quote was one that was appropriated by the British in Cyprus, used as a as a kind of promotional tool. That very line. So he's he's speaking back to to the British colonial government at that point. And he is also addressing, the, you know, all the crusaders and that history of crusading and that history of, of colonization. I suppose the, the difficulty with that last line in the way that he uses it um, is that it is, I mean, we, we mentioned that the, the Greek line doesn't have that sense of you are welcome to it. You can take it. You can have it. But it does, on the other hand, it was also a welcoming. So you 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 have to, if you want to keep the tone of the poem, you are forced, I suppose, to read it as sarcastic. But there's nothing that impels you to read it as sarcastic. Is the poem at the end making a final turn and saying, well, take it then, you know, have it. Or is it definitely sarcastic? I mean, I would suppose, I would suggest that because the, of the tone of the poem up to that point, it's encouraging you to read that line in a sarcastic way, but it does lose that that kind of idiomatic English sense of you can take it. And I guess I've done, I'm just trying to think of think think back to the play Othello and think of various making these observations. So, like Othello, okay, so he's a powerful general in some respects, but he is also a servant of of Venice fundamentally. Um, he he doesn't really have an option to say anything other than, yeah, I'll do I'll do what you tell me to, and you're welcome to Cyprus. You're welcome, you know, I'll sup with you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of really he's only doing his job. That yeah, you know, that's the only way he should be doing his job. Is there a similar sort of position here in that, like the you, you know, Cyprus is this 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 small island on the way to these you know the most important holy sites for a lot of Western uh, Christians is he in a position where he can say anything else? And I that something, something you've reminded yeah. something you did tell me about was that there was a time when Tur- when Cyprus was powerful enough to uh, invade Turkey, right? So obviously, so I'm saying things like, oh yeah, just a small island. It's not a trans historical fact that Cyprus is a small, weak island and cannot like invade people or defend itself. That's not a trans historical fact. That's just sort of a circumstance, but. Is there a sense that there's not much else he can actually say where he where he's at? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a I think that's a really really a really really nice observation, Joel. And I actually, it made me think that maybe what is going on here is you know what Homi Baba famously called sly civility, right? Maybe this is the the Cypriot subject saying, yeah, all right, you can have it. And there's an ellipsis there as to what's going to happen next, because although this poem was written in 1953, it was published in 1955, which is when the anti-colonial movement begins. So this poem is published in tandem with the start of the anti-colonial movement. So maybe there is a kind of a knowing nod there, a knowing kind of, yeah, you're welcoming, a kind of cunning opening of the door. Come in and see what we have for you. So can you just explain to me, so what function does that serve as a as a as a resistance to to colony uh, that 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 way of saying come come in uh, how does it how does it serve the resistance 
Well, I mean, in precisely that way, maybe it's blindsiding them. Maybe it's saying, yeah, okay, you can take it. You can have it. It's a, it's a bluff, right? But then we're going to be, be nasty to you. And then... Yeah, exactly. And it's, as you put it, it's, it's, the only, it's the only thing the slave can say to the master, right? You can take it. You know, it's yours. But maybe the slave is thinking or planning something else. And so the go, okay. And then, and maybe then looking at that line, you know, which is a line in two halves, you're welcome, sir, to Cyprus lords, then goats and monkeys on the other hand. Like goats and monkeys, it, it, it isn't, you know, to, to my kind of tarnished ears, you know, goats and monkeys doesn't register as like being a terrible, um, you know, outcry of swearing or anything, but clearly it is. But clearly, especially when we've read Othello and and Iago's talked about Primus goats as hot as monkeys, we we know what register those goats and monkeys are coming from. And yeah, yeah. if you're welcome, sir, well, if you're welcome to Cyprus, is the first part the kind of the only thing you can say. The goats and monkeys is everything you want to say, but you can't say, um, which feels like also what. Is like for Othello that the goats and monkeys are the the frustration the frustrations of not getting the proof the 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 frustration of the jealousy the anguish of of betrayal that is totally phony. There's not much he can really say that's that's rational or objective or anything. It's just these goats and monkeys. Yeah, he he wants to say something, um, but he doesn't want to say the wrong thing, and so. He manages to to say the only thing he can say without swearing, but it's also the thing that Marxism out has being much changed, right? It's an impossible position that he's that he's put in. I also think with that line that the, you know, would we recognise that line as being from Shakespeare if Seferis omitted the goats and monkeys? Well, you spoke you spoke a little bit earlier about the the way that there's so many authorial voices being merged here, and that's one of the things that really attracted me to this poem is the fact that it ends up putting the words of Othello into the mouth of a Cypriot saint and, you know, the words of a Cypriot saint into the mouth of Othello in in tandem as well, that in a way Othello is speaking for Cyprus on behalf of Cyprus. So I wonder if that line, the function of it is there to make it clear that there is a reference to Othello being made rather than because goats and monkeys serve some you know, the, the, the purpose it serves is not that goats and monkeys are important to the poem, but rather that we need to recognise that it is a fellow who is speaking at this point. Okay, yeah, so another, an, an, enter another speaker. Yeah. Well, listen, Roger, with a fellow's entrance, I think we should make an exit. And <laughs> I wonder, could you do us a big favour? Because I think we, we've had a really illuminating chat, especially when we've actually got to the Seferis um you know it's been really nice to talk about that and it, the, such a challenging poem but I, I feel like um you know I've, I've got a kind of map of what's going on would you mind just reading it for us a second time you could just do it in English if you want if you really wanted to do it in Greek as well you could do but it might be nice just to hear the poem one more time and and we that will be our closing statement we'll we'll wrap up as soon as you've finished yeah i'd love to do that joe i think there's one or two things that can we just make one or two points before we finish the poem go on go on quickly yeah i, th- I think we've we've spoken a lot about the, the poem kind of encourages us to, to think about greekness a lot and we've been sort of thinking about greekness a lot 
and and what Seferis is doing with it. I think it's really important when we're thinking about this poem just to make the point that Seferis has a, a particular view about what the island is, and he sees it as a Greek space, and he's tying it in to all these kind of ancient Greek or Byzantine Greek concerns in the way that Neophytus does. Um, but I think it's really important to gloss that by, by saying that this isn't the way that everybody views Cyprus, and I would count myself in, in, as one of those people. And, and a different discussion we could have had about the poem, and which is a different podcast on a different theme perhaps, is, is just how nationalistic the poem is and how it serves the, the, the kind of the narrative of Cyprus as being a, a homogenous place. And that part of what drew me to, to the poem was to make that critique of it as well. On the one hand, it's really, really powerful in that it chooses to uh, make a critique of colonialism and of the Crusades by using Othello. But on the other hand, it's also upholding kind of homogenous narratives about who Cypriots are, that they, they have to be uh, either Greek speakers or Turkish speakers, and they have to pick a side again, kind of dissolving or getting rid of the inherent diversity of the island. And one of the things he does just to illustrate that is that he talks about the Lusignians, for example, as if they are enemies. Now, there is a great debate in Cyprus about whether you should talk about Lusignan control of the island or the Lusignan period, Venetian control of the island or the Venetian period, because what people are grappling with is are these moments where we are being colonized, are they part of who we are? Is this part of our own diversity? And should we be thinking about these part, these moments in time as part of our history, not as an external history that is imposed on us? So I think it's really important just to make that point about this poem, because there might be people listening who are saying, actually, this vision of Greekness is not one I associate with Cyprus, and it's actually not one that I would associate with Cyprus. So... To finish on that note, um, I'll read it for you one last time. So Neophidos Englistos speaks. As for King Isaac, he imprisoned him in the castle known as Marcapo. And as for his colleague Saladin, the rogue took no action against him, but instead sold the country to the Latins for 1,200 measures of gold, which was the cause of great lamentation. And as foretold, the smoke came from the north, became unbearable. Overbearing structures, Hilarium, Famagusta, Bufavento, mere backdrops, hardly how we used to conceive of that Jesus Christ triumphs, once seen above the walls of the imperial city, now pocked with weeds and hovels and the great towers cast down like some defeated giant's dice. It had meant something else to us, this war for Christ's faith and for man's soul, cradled by Our Lady of Victories, her eyes holding the anguish of the Greeks like a mosaic, the anguish of that sea at the approach of kindness. What if they struck their Lusignum melodramas against crusader backdrops while we gag on the smoke from northern torches? Let them hack at each other, beating the wind like a galley before the storm. You are welcome to Cyprus lords, goats and monkeys. Have changed so clear.